This is a Sound Health radio show with Richard Talk to Me Guy. And Sherry Edwards is off working on the soundhealthportal.com. If you'd like to find out more information about the Sound Health Portal, I recommend actually going to the soundhealthportal.com, scrolling down to the very bottom of the page, and clicking on videos, and watching one of the video demonstrations where Sherry does a live workup on, on air in a webinar with someone who's volunteered to have their vocal profile worked up. Then, after you watch that, so you can see the vast amount of data in the intake and the, and the technical process of how it goes through the software, a vocal recording goes through the software, then go back and scroll to the top, to the campaigns, to the current campaigns, and the, such campaigns as neuroplasticity or Parkinson's or biodiet, and choose one that you'd like to have your vocal print, which means a voice recording, run through the software, and then scroll down a bit further, sign up for free membership, and then the system will guide you through recording two 30 to 40 second recordings directly from your computer. Then when you submit that, within two to 24 hours, you'll get back a report, an email. And when, they say, when you sign up for free membership, they don't spam you, they don't sell your name. It's just so they can send you a report and follow up if you have questions, when you have questions. And you submit that, and you'll get that information back, and I suggest sitting down with a cup of tea because it's quite a bit of information. And especially if you've watched the video first, the demonstration, it really gives you the context of the possibilities of information that can be derived and seen in a chart on the portal. If you have a practitioner who's open to that kind of information, I would then go sit down with your practitioner and say, what do we think about this? How can we make that work better or make it assimilate more effectively? All those sorts of things. I love the Sound Health Portal. It's a great tool. When you want to hear a replay of this show, which I know you will with Jennifer Margulis, go to talktomeguy.com and you'll see the shows there. Great search engine there. More show notes that I add after the show or at that site. And you can also, if you have any questions or you want to suggest a guest for the show, you can leave me a voice message. There's a microphone right at the bottom, and you can click on it. And it's set up really well, in particular, the talktomeguy.com is set up particularly well for mobile devices. So you can do everything right from your phone since I see everybody doing that. It's got all the info there. I think there it has about 350 or so shows. With that, Jennifer Margulis, Ph.D., is an award-winning science journalist, a Fulbright grantee, and sought-after speaker. She's worked on child survival campaign in West Africa, spoken out against child slavery on live primetime TV in France, and taught post-colonial literature to non-traditional students in inner-city Atlanta. She's the author of Your Baby, Your Way, Taking Charge of Your Pregnancy, Childbirth and Parenting Decisions for a Happier, Healthier Family, and co-author of the number one Amazon bestseller, The Vaccine-Friendly Plan, with Dr. Paul Thomas. She's currently working on a book about her mother, microbiologist Lynn Margolis. Jennifer joins us to discuss a science-forward approach in troubled times. Welcome, Jennifer. Thanks for having me, Richard. I'm glad to be here. We had a little technical excitement backstage before the show began, so I'm happy to hear you. I <laughs> know. How's the sound? <laughs> it's good. It's good. We can hear you. That's the main thing. We can hear you. I'm sorry. It's add, not better. We didn't. We couldn't quite figure out our technical glitches. I know. It's, it's always, there's always some excitement uh, at the beginning of a show. It's live. I love that part about live. It has that little bit of what I call cinematic tension. <laughs> I want to start by saying, when I started researching you on the Internet, I found caustic headlines. One doctor called you a rising star of the anti-vaccine movement, and another accused you of being in cahoots with Fox News. What's it like having so many detractors? And, and, I, want to put foot, and I want a footnote right here. Personally, I feel if I'm not offending some group or organization, then I need to dig deeper. So what's it like being the target of 
everybody going, no, we don't trust her. Right. Well, I, I must be doing something right because um, I get criticism from both sides of the aisle, if I can put it that way. Um, it's interesting because, you know, very mainstream oriented traditional medical doctors throw around this word anti-vaccine and they say, oh, you know, you're just an anti-vaxxer and, or you're a crazy crackpot or, you know, you, you don't, you don't know science or you haven't done the research. And then on the other side of the coin, you know, people who are really against all vaccinations for all people at all times criticize me um, for being how dare I recommend that people put poison into their bodies. So you know, the, the, the vitriol can come from both sides of the spectrum. And I don't just write about vaccines. I write about how for-profit medicine and big pharma skew the way we make decisions about our health and the information that we have access to. And I'm all about open dialogue and honest debate and sharing of information. I think name-calling on any side of an issue is a way to shut down the conversation. I'm interested in opening up the conversations and talking about the hard stuff. Um, say, Richard, is that um, whenever you see somebody being accused of being an, a crazy anti-vaxxer, I'd like you to sort of put that sentence in scare quotes, quotes in, your, in your head and ask yourself, is that just a way to dismiss vaccine safety advocates? And, you know, I think that everyone in the world, in the United States and around the world, should care about vaccine safety and safe vaccination. Um, so that doesn't make anybody anti-science. It doesn't make anybody crazy. It just makes people aware of safety concerns, which obviously we all should be. Well, I'm a – that's one of the things when I first started researching you, and I saw I, – somewhere I read so much about you that I forget where I saw it. But you said something, it might have been LinkedIn, where you used some phrase about, we don't necessarily need to agree, but we need to talk. Which is so exactly. old schooly of you. <laughs> I'm so old school. You're yeah, so old school. You know, it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I don't want to, I don't believe in cancel culture. I don't believe we should just cancel and I don't believe we should shut down. I think we should open up and we should have the conversations. And, you know, one of the things that I find fascinating is that instead of arguing about the points, like let's go through something point by point. You tell me your point of view, Richard, and I'll tell you mine. You tell me where you did your research or what stories you heard or what personal experience you had, and I'll tell you mine. That's what a dialogue looks like. And that is perhaps old school. Maybe it's completely passe because what's happening now is somebody says something that someone else disagrees with. And instead of arguing the point, you just try to cancel the person. That means you, you censor them from social media. You take their articles down from medium.com. You make sure nobody can find them on Google search engines, right? So you're, you're not having any conversation. You're just in an echo chamber. And, you know, honestly, I find that deeply, deep disturbing. Well, I've always come from a, a position uh, for decades now, um, actually since I think I heard, first heard her here, uh, heard Carolyn Rafford the Burger use this phrase, talking about the precautionary principle, which is just that. It's not complicated. It doesn't take a degree in anything. It's just the precautionary principle about how about we look at this from a side and then maybe look at this side and we consider everything before we jump in. Maybe we wouldn't have glyphosate. We'll talk about that later. Maybe we wouldn't have glyphosate if we had used the precautionary principle of the idea of, hey, wait a second, do you think? You know, that kind of right. dialogue is so powerful and that seems to be – I don't know. I have bad cinematic images in my mind. Um, I'll just say, put out back <laughs> behind the barn in the movie Shane. Um, you know, it's bad. It's just, it's a bad thing where we've just lost this ability to, as soon as you say something, then somebody says, no, you're wrong. Get out. Well, they don't really? say you're wrong. They say, what they say is they say, no, you don't have the credentials or no, you're a crackpot or no, you know, you can't speak. 
that's what they do. They, they can't say you're wrong because of X, Y, Z. I mean, I, I welcome that. Tell me I'm wrong and tell me why. And then let me change my mind. Let me go and research. Let me be nuanced. Let me understand your point of view. But what we do is we just we cancel the person. So, you know, that's called shooting the messenger. We all know from reading William Shakespeare that that didn't work so well for Macbeth. Um, it doesn't help you to shoot the messenger. It doesn't forward anything. So, and I, I think the precautionary principle is excellent. The, you know, the idea behind the precautionary principle is that when we introduce something new, especially a new medication or a new technology or a new, you know, surgery, that the burden of proof of safety is on what we have introduced. So you can't say that, well, there's no evidence of harm because all that means is that there's no evidence. We actually have to show that something is safe, necessary, and effective. That's the precautionary principle. And, you know, if we actually abided by that in medicine, our country would be in much better shape health-wise. I'm pausing and taking a deep breath so I don't dive into that whole thing. (laughs) That's not where I wanted to go today because I just (laughs) am such in a bad mood about that whole, like, how exactly did the vaccine industry become non-liable? What is that? (laughs) That's a whole separate show. We'll just put that over there because we both could run off on that like wild dogs. I've heard you say, this goes so well with this, I've heard you say sometimes you need to turn off the TV, turn off the radio, And I would add, turn off the social media machine for a while and chill out. Perhaps go out in nature. That seems like a radical idea. What? No social media? I'm not scrolling while I'm walking in nature? What? (laughs) Well, so now you've accused me of being so old-fashioned, and now you're saying I'm just too radical. Um, Yeah. You know, there's a lot of benefits to being in nature. And, I mean, that, I'm not saying that because I want everyone to, you know, put a flower chain around their foreheads and wear long flowing skirts and become hippies. <laughs> but I'm, I'm saying that because we know from, from a lot of scientific studies that um, the immune system is really boosted by um, m- many things that we can get when we're in nature, including you've heard about and maybe you've talked about it on your show the idea of forest bathing, that, you know, when you go out in the forest and you just walk and you just enjoy that you're actually, you're breathing in such healthy oxygen and you're getting all of these benefits. And the benefits are, you know, both psychological and they're physical. Um, obviously, we need to be moving our bodies. The biggest problems we have in the United States, so many doctors have talked about if we could make simple lifestyle changes. And Again, this isn't about going to the gym and being an Olympic athlete and, you know, destroying your body to build up your muscle mass. I mean, all of that's wonderful, but just simple things like making sure that you're moving throughout the day, taking a walk in the forest, taking a walk in the park. Um, and then there's, of course, the, the issue of vitamin D, which is something that's gotten a lot of attention because people like supplements and supplement companies like to sell supplements. Um, way to get vitamin D. So, you know, you're going to see recommendations from every sort of um, more natural-minded medical doctor, and, you know, we call those functional doctors or integrative doctors, are going to tell you to get your vitamin D levels checked. And this is true that the majority, the vast majority of Americans are vitamin D deficient. My favorite way to get vitamin D is so after you've walked in the forest, get out into the fields and get yourself sunlight on your skin, um, you know, or you can take off all your clothes and if, you're, if you have a private space in the backyard and, you know, spend 10 minutes a day if you have white skin just, you know, outside in the sun or if you're darker skinned, you, you need even more time in the sun. And it's kind of verboten to say that, Richard, because we're all afraid of getting sunburned. Obviously, I'm not telling anyone to get a sunburn, but I am saying that that time spent outside in the sunshine is going to help your mood, it's going to help your immune system, and it's going to help you sleep better at night. (laughs) Excuse me. I'm laughing because of, so you mean you're not 
Pro smearing stuff all over your skin to block the sunlight from getting to you, let alone the act of smearing who knows what onto your skin that the sun is then photo driving into your tissues. You're not a fan of that? Is that what you're saying? Um, yeah, I mean, this is, you know, this is, con- this is difficult. This is controversial. And let me I go know. back to a word I used earlier. Let's be, let's be nuanced about it. Let's not just say, you know, all X is bad and all Y is good. So we can't say all sunscreen is bad and all sunbathing is good because that would not be a nuanced position. I think that we make a mistake in the United States. We know that we're vitamin D deficient. We know the best way for the body to get vitamin D, which has, you know, so many important roles in the body and in in our cells, is to get it through the sunshine. So when you're out in the sun, you need to be careful not to get burned. There's lots of ways not to get burned. And I do have concerns about the, the, the sort of conventional sunscreens. And those concerns are you know, are, are making headlines these days because we know some of the ingredients in the conventional sunscreens, we, we suspect that they may be carcinogenic. So I do, and to say nothing of the, to the environment when you're spraying aerosolized sunscreen and then you're actually breathing it into your lungs. So when you see mm. a, a very well-meaning and wonderful parent, you know, at the beach just taking their kid and spraying them down from head to toe, I, I feel sorry to see that happen. I know that it's happening with the best intentions and, you know, we're afraid of getting sunburned. At the same time, we have to go back to the precautionary principle and, you know, find out if the sunscreen that we're using is actually safe. Well, and in my conversations with Stephanie Sineff, I've, I've interviewed Stephanie about a half a dozen times. We've talked about the idea of if you spend 10 minutes in the sun one day and then maybe in two days spend 15 minutes in the sun and then eventually you're up to half an hour in the sun, pretty soon you develop this thing we used to call a tan. And then your skin (laughs) becomes kind of resistant to being burned. It it seems to be a radical idea ever since Coppertone and the little girl on the boat on the billboards everywhere. That's how old I am. Coppertone and billboards. Well, so that, so that I remember Coppertone that, you know, that brings us to a important point, which is that, you know, it's always interesting to see where you're getting your health advice and what people are trying to sell you. And, you know, you said Coppertone has changed our minds about the sun. I mean, it's true that during Victorian times, people really valued, so it's white people, I'm talking about Europeans, um, you know, sort of valued that alabaster skin. And then they would simply put up a parasol, which is a great way to do it if you're afraid of the sun. You know, get yourself an umbrella. Then you're not smearing anything on your skin. And then when you want to break and you want to go into the sun, you put the umbrella down. But, um, you know, the idea that something like sunshine would be harmful to you, that's been so relentlessly promoted and marketed to, you know, to the world, especially in the United States, that there's a reason for that. It's because people make money off of you when they sell you products. And they also make money off of you when you're unhealthy. So we have a fundamental problem in the United States that all of your very sophisticated listeners are already aware of. But, you know, we have a for-profit medical system, which means that if everyone were as healthy as you are, <laughs> and Dr. Seneff is, um, you know, we would we would practically bankrupt big medicine. And it's not that we don't have a, there's not a time and a place for medical intervention. There absolutely is. And, you know, so much of the time, the, especially the emergency room doctors are just these life-saving heroes on so many levels. But the fundamental conflict of interest is that the sicker we are, the more people profit in our system. And I find that deeply disturbing. Once again, I'm pausing so I don't get into my clo- put on my cloven hooves and get on a soapbox because yeah, we don't have a we don't really have a health care system. We have a sick care system, and exactly. I, I will say um, I'm certainly audience is tired of hearing me talk about it. But I was a chef on and off for 20 years, so I am the guy that when you cut off the tip of your thumb or something bad happens when you're cutting up large sides of beef and you cut the wrong thing, I'm the guy that will grab that and throw it in a bag of ice and take you immediately to an ER. 
I'm not going to like, let's put some salve on that and just wrap it in gauze and it'll be fine. I'm like, get us to the doctor now. On the other hand, everything you just said, you know, we, we need to take responsibility and there's so many things that we can be doing to help ourselves. I have no place to go with that. <laughs> no, absolutely. Well, I do. I have a place to go with that. You know, one of Great. my favorite books of all, of all time, which is a, you can get it for, I think, seven ninety nine in a mass market paperback or get it from the library. I'm not trying to sell anybody a book. I have no conflict of interest. The person who wrote it has since passed away. Is called um, How to Raise a Healthy Child in Spite of Your Doctor. And I, I just love the title of the book even there, How to Raise a Healthy Child in Spite of Your Doctor. I read that book. I've probably read that book three times cover to cover and used it as a reference for years when my kids were little. My my oldest is 21 and my youngest is 11, so I don't have as much opportunity to be reading, you know, books about healthy children and parenting and that kind of thing anymore. But what was what's wonderful about that book is it basically gives you all the tools that you need stay away from the doctor and he says throughout the book he's a highly respected medical doctor and he says throughout the book you know that the the, the one of the best ways to stay healthy is to is to stay away and the caveat to that is that you know is that our emergency medical system is really one of the best in the world and that emergency room doctors are just doing excellent work and they're literally saving lives and it's possible to have two things that are, seem slightly contradictory to both be true at the same time. So it can be true that the healthiest kids are the ones who stay away from the well baby visits, who don't um, overexpose their children to toxins in prescription and over-the-counter medications, and well, maybe we can talk more about that, um, and so who are in general, you know, responsible parents who are taking good care of their kids, but they're not trying to go a total medical model, that can be true. And it can be true that we do have an outstanding healthcare system when we really, really need it. I will jump to, I was going to go a different direction, but I, I will jump to for a moment. I'm of an age now when I rarely go to the doctor and I have found the perfect hippie doctor. <laughs> <laughs> she, most, she really a, a well coiffed a well coiffed happy you know graduate from brown with a serious degree and we have we have a, an agreement in a very positive way that she knows i'm not going to do any of that <laughs> medications i'm of an age where if i went to a standard practitioner they because i have friends that go to a doctor and the first thing they'll do is they'll, the checklist is, are you taking this? Are you taking that? Are you taking this? What medications are you on? And when I've had to go to a, a, a separate doctor for something, I was a few, five or six years ago, I was almost died. We'll just go there. I almost died. And when I was dealing with doctors and they were asking me what meds I was on, they were like, but none. What do you mean none? How's that possible? It's possible. <laughs> I'm alive. I'm still standing here. I'm talking. I'm still cranky. Um, it's well, you've, and not... you've mentioned several times about your about your age, so now I have to ask you. Maybe your listeners already know, but how old are you? I'm 69. 69. Okay. So I should be on statins. I should be on diuretics. I should be on some kind of you know handful of medications, like so many people I know. And I'm not on any of those. And I'm certain some of that comes from talking with people like Stephanie Sineff, who's like statins. Bluck, what are you thinking? Um, or Doc Giff, this wonderful doctor who's 98, who when I interview him, his opening proviso is always, I'm 98, you better make an appointment soon. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he really is. He's he's wonderful. And he's a, he's a mm, not exactly a trainee, but he did get to do direct research with Linus Pauling. So mm -hmm. he is an advocate of vitamin C. And that's one of the things that's missing that I see all this chest beating, whatever the side is, I haven't heard any of the standard talking heads, anybody talk about, hey, let's all take more vitamin C. What about diet? What about eating well? What about how you think? Can you, I know I you can address you, some of that. Please do. Oh, it. absolutely. I mean, I think that when you start, when you, the reason why you said you haven't heard the talking heads talk about that, because I think that they, 
either they really honestly believe that it's just witch doctoring snake oil and they don't want to be accused of being snake oil salespeople, you know, or they really haven't educated themselves because you have to do a deep dive into, you know, into the peer-reviewed science. And also, I mean, there's so many ways to gather information. That's not the end-all be-all, but I do, I do like to start with looking at scientific studies, but also talking to people like your doctor um, who sounds amazing. The first thing I'd want to do is get on the phone or see him in person and ask him all the things that he thinks are contributing to his good health. And I find longevity research to be absolutely fascinating. Um, and one of the things that we see in longevity research, I just have to go back to the sun, is that, you know, the people who tend to live the longest, healthiest lives are spending uh, are spending a good amount of time outside every day and getting sunlight on their skins. And there, you know, there's many other factors and it's tremendously complicated, but, and what works for one person might not work for another. And because we're all humans and we're all grownups and we're all critical thinkers, we can understand this. We can understand that some of those medications are going to be life-saving for some people, but even better without taking them. And, you know, Richard, you said that you're 69 years old and you don't take regularly take prescription medication and that your non-regular doctors are astonished by that. I was astonished when I was doing some research. The, the last book that I wrote is called The Addiction Spectrum, and I co-wrote it with Dr. Paul Thomas. And we were spending a lot of time, you know, interviewing. He, Dr. Thomas had a, a, an addiction clinic for young people, people in their 30s or under, who were addicted mostly to opioids. And I spent quite a bit of time just interviewing young people and, and middle-aged people and a few older people about their struggles with addiction. And one of the things that absolutely astonished me is over and over again, I was talking to people in their 20s and 30s who were taking something like 13 or 14 prescription medications. Mm. So what happens there, and we're not talking about older adults. We are talking about people who should be healthy. What happens there is that, you know, it starts off with something like a car accident and they get whiplash in their neck, and then they're given a painkiller. And then the painkiller that they're taking is making them is making them get so much brain fog that then the doctor will put them on an ADHD medication. And the ADHD medication is having side effects where your hands are shaking. And so then the doctor puts them on yet another prescription drug. And I, I couldn't even imagine someone taking 13 prescription medications at the same time. And, and lo and behold, this is actually very common in the United States. Once again, I'm pausing and taking a deep breath <laughs> because... <laughs> Wow, I could go off on that. I, I, well, I will jump ever so slightly. During my recovery, I was in a healthcare facility. And early on, and it was a big facility, 250 beds, three people to a room with curtains in between. And the doctor who handled a, I think they had two doctors pass through. This was a professional operation. I'll just call it an operation. And the doctor would come in, and for about the first month or two, while I was going through a bunch of surgeries, the doctor and I would get into what I would call a, a heated discussion because I was like, no, I'm not going to take that. No. I, yes, I was on pain medications when I was having surgeries. Yes, I was, you know, all of, I wasn't refusing that, but there was a bunch of follow-up medications. And at some point she got what I would call disgusted. She got fed up um, and said, okay, I get it. You know what you're doing. You know what you're taking. I'm just going to stop telling you. And I said, great. <laughs> and, and it was our agreement to disagree. She finally just got to a point where I knew enough in terms of, no, I'm not going to take those. I'm not going to take these. Why would I take that? Blah, 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 blah. And so it is part of what we're, I, I get, this is a perfect cue, I think, to talk about risk-benefit analysis, where in my mind, I had enough information. I'd already done four years of terrestrial radio, and I've done 500 hours of shows. So I have a lot of people that I've talked to. So I've done my own research. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to take statins. Why? Insert string of bad words. Um, <laughs> so it really, this is a perfect, for me, a perfect setup to ask you about. I've heard you refer to the risk-benefit analysis. But first, I'd like to step sideways for a moment and ask about how you do research and how you'd recommend for our listeners how they can do their own research 
so that they can come to their own educated conclusions and do their own so benefit research, analysis. research about just about any health topic or about anything, or what are we researching, for example? Oh, let's really dive into the deep end of the pool and talk about glyphosate. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. It doesn't have to be that. No, no, no. It's just funny because I don't know that most people wake up in the morning, grab a cup of green tea, and say, I'm going to think about glyphosate. In That's fact, my life. <laughs> some of the, yes. Some of the smartest and most educated people I know don't even know that word. And it's, I mean, they know, they've heard of Roundup, but they don't realize that glyphosate is the, is the main yeah. ingredient in Roundup. Yeah. Um, maybe we can talk about, if, if we can come back to glyphosate, maybe we can talk sure. about coronavirus, because that Great. would be the thing that I think is That's on everybody's perfect. mind. And, That's yeah. Perfect. And, you know, the thing is, is that you wake, you wake up in the morning, and if you are if you're consuming media, you're going to see like a hundred or at least a dozen articles about, about all these sort of latest information about coronavirus and it can be completely overwhelming. So, and then with coronavirus, there's so many things that are affecting our everyday lives. There's the question of whether it's safer to be wearing a mask, whether it's safer to be wearing two masks, whether it's safer to be wearing two masks and a fitter on your face, whether your mask should be disposable or cloth, whether it's okay to be outside in the forest, like we were talking about earlier, without those two masks on and the fitter that the CDC has recommended. So, and then, of course, what, what is probably even more pressing or equally as pressing on people's minds is what about all of these different vaccines? There are so many choices. Who should be getting them? Who are they counterindicated for? And then you, you, I think the news this morning was that Ontario, Canada is going back into a really draconian lockdown. And mm. um, I didn't have time to, to really research that, but I saw a lot of people feeling incredibly frustrated in Canada right now, feeling like there's just this huge government overreach and that to tell people to like basically go in your house and lock your door against the virus um, might not be the right way forward for our public health. So that I think that would be if we want to talk sort of in general about how to do research. I think that would be that would be a good topic. Is that are you? Yes, that's great. You agree? Yes, okay. Thank you. <laughs> um, so you know the thing is is that we all have to decide what kind of risks we're gonna we're willing to take and what kind of benefits um, you know we we may or may not get. And I'll I'll I'll, I'll just share a personal experience, which is that you know since this coronavirus um, became a concern for people, many, many members of my family have felt like it's just so dangerous to go out in public and they canceled trips. My, you know, my kids haven't seen their one set of grandparents. They had not seen, I should say it that way, for over a year and a half. And the feeling among those older adults was that we don't, we don't feel safe and we don't want to go out. And then we, my husband and I were at the park with our, with one of our kids and we saw this, this um, grandma and she had her two daughter, her two granddaughters there. And she, she, we started talking to her a little bit and, and she said, you know, I said, how are you feeling about coronavirus? I'm always interested in just asking people for their experiences. And she said, you know, when it first happened, I did the lockdown like they told us to do and I didn't see these kids. And she pointed to these beautiful granddaughters of hers and she actually had tears in her eyes, and she said, I'm 70-whatever years old. I'm 75 years old, and I realized that I did it for six weeks, and my heart was so broken, and I decided that something's got to kill me. It's not worth living my life without seeing my family. And um, Mm. I was so moved by her saying that and so impressed because we've been feeling just personally so sorry and missing, desperately missing seeing our loved ones and our, our, you know, our friends and our relatives. And I keep coming back to this idea, which is, I mean, which is that, you know, the average life expectancy in the United States is, it it changes, of course, from year to year, but it's about 78, age 78. So most, and that's, that, you know, obviously that's wildly divergent because you're going to have sudden infant death syndrome and then you're going to have lots of people who live into their 90s. But we can expect that 
the average life expectancy is about 78 years old. So here was a woman, I, I don't know that she was 75. I think she might have been a little younger. So <laughs> forgive me for not getting the details right. But, you know, here was a, a woman towards the end of her life, which is what she said. You know, I, I've lived an amazing and wonderful life, and I realize my life isn't worth living if I can't hug my grandkids. And that just really struck me so hard. And I think one of the things that we have to do is we have to find what feels the best for ourselves, even if that's not necessarily, you know, quote, the safest or, quote, the most scientific. Um, I tend to, I tend to not from the heart, but research from the brain, you know. <laughs> and so what was interesting to me was to look at coronaviruses in general, to really follow and track all of the health information we had about death rates, about transmission, and one of the things that you find very quickly, and everyone who's listening knows this, is that is that the, the, the information is going to be tremendously contradictory. So you're going to be part, you're going to be trying to, to parse out good health information from preliminary data, from data that may or may not be accurate, and it becomes very difficult. But one thing I will say is that, you know, always looking at anything you're reading with a critical mind, whether it's something that reinforces what you suspect to be true. And I'll tell you, and this comes from, I have over 15 years of writing about and researching health. And I know I was really struck years ago by reading the work of a, actually, I think a zoologist who was talking about how mammals thrive with active touching, that you really need, you know, think about a babies, any mammal babies that are born like rats. Um, not that that's like the best mammal, if not the cutest. Okay, puppies. <laughs> People don't like rats, but they love rats are actually incredibly smart and interesting animals. But let's talk about dogs. Like, you know, baby puppies are born and the moms will lick them. They lick and they lick and they lick and they all need to be together. And it turns out that active touching is how we we stimulate growth hormones in humans, and we also know that older adults really, really benefit that once you're not growing anymore, your bone density benefits from active touching, which is why I always recommend that, you know, obviously it has to be mutually consensual, but that people touch each other, that they hug each other, that they dance, that they, you know, if you, if you don't have anyone in your immediate surroundings, that you go get yourself a massage or a pedicure or, you know, we need that. I, and I, that didn't change the moment that our health officials said, don't talk to people, don't, don't, don't shake people's hands, <laughs> don't go out in public, don't hug. And the idea that we started telling grandparents that, you know, or grandchildren, you might kill your grandma if you hug them. And I have a very close and dear person in my life who gave, whose mother-in-law gave her a hug. And she said, oh, my God, I might have killed her. And we were on the phone. I just paused for a minute, took a deep breath, and I said, did you kill her? And she goes, no, I didn't, but I could have. And I said, but was she okay? And she said, well, yeah, but I mean, she just hugged me and she didn't give me the choice and I, she could have died. And to me, that's very counterintuitive. I think that I know as from, from years of health research and also from being a human being that we are social animals and that we need to live in community and that we need to hug each other. I also know that sick people, I'm sorry, that healthy people don't make other healthy people sick. And so one of the things that was interesting to me in terms of looking at all of the research and trying to follow the numbers and track what was going on and track public health recommendations was everything that was being left out of the conversation. So, you know, as, as it's just always good to keep a critical mind and an open mind and you know, like going back to the grandma in the park, she did do the lockdown. She realized from her own risk-benefit analysis that life wasn't worth living without being around her loved ones. And I just saw her the other day, Richard, um, in line at a very wonderful organic bakery that we have in town, and she just looked mm. so healthy and vibrant, and she was standing right there with a bunch of her loved ones. And so she didn't lock down. And she's clearly doing just fine. And then I think about all the people who spent a year pining away for their loved ones who are, you know, who, who have lost a lot of their health gains and who've also lost a year of their lives. Well, I think it'd be really interesting if somebody did a study looking at the immunosuppression to the system 
for being in lockdown. I'm not saying everybody has to go out and, you know, grab somebody and lick them. I just mean in terms of, <laughs> I just mean in terms of, it's it's part of the, I, I've used this a lot, that the, the mind doesn't know the difference, the immune system doesn't know the difference between the saber-toothed tiger and thinking about the saber-toothed tiger all the time. And in this, in this instance, for me, being in a state of fear is immunosuppressive because being in fear is, well, when, when dogs are scared, they get scared, they go out and bark and chase or they get chased or something happens, and then they sit and shake. And people think they sit and shake because they're scared. It's, it's not because they're scared. It's because they're throwing off the cortisol rush. All the excess cortisol in the body is being tossed off as they shake. That's how they dissipate that energy. And then they rest, typically. So if we're in a chronic state of fear, it's suppressing our immune system and it's making us more vulnerable to anything. The common cold, the dumb old common cold. So having pleasure, having joy, walking in the forest, all those things that make us happier are good. And, and I will add to that, hugging hugging your loved ones and making love and, you know, seeing your grandchildren and holding them on your lap and playing with babies. I mean, all of those things are also helping us, helping our physical immunity and our mental well-being. And as you so eloquently just said, you know, those two things are so intimately connected. And it's very painful to watch um, how this, sort of fear culture, which is so effective for selling products. I mean, <laughs> there's so many things you can buy now to keep you, including a <laughs> microclimate. So it's like a huge helmet. You put it on your head and it regenerates oxygen for you. So you have your own miniature microclimate. And Richard, those microclimates only cost about $225 and you can get one on a payment plan. Um, but, you know, <laughs> watching how much fear has has harmed us as a, I mean, we could talk about my small town, which is really a sad, sad case in point. But I mean, I think that Americans, there's no question that our mental health is suffering. And I think our ability to think clearly and to remember our humanity is also suffering during this time. Oh, you're such a Renaissance hippie. Humanity. What? What are you thinking? <laughs> Show me the research about humanity. Come on. Um, it's, it's really quite amazing how, yeah, that's been lost. And there is a, and it kind of goes back to where we started, an early part of the conversation, is that we don't need to agree, but we need to talk. And, and we have moved into a situation which is, you're wrong, I'm right. And that doesn't lead to any kind of community or caring or it just leads to argument and in the old days, you know, throwing rocks and flaming things at each other. It's just it, 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 not where I was going, but it just comes to mind that it's like it's not supportive. We really are. We really are kind of pack animals. Wolves are so much smarter than us. They know they're pack animals. Yeah. And they care about each other. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. And I mean, it's not only that you're wrong and I'm right and I'm going to throw rocks, but then it's you're dangerous. So I, you know, you need to shut up because you're so, your ideas are so dangerous that you're going to hurt people with them. I mean, so when you say things like, I mean, in, in Oregon, all of the doctors who were promoting early, this is true in the United States in general, but I just know specifically about Oregon, um, which is the state that I live in, um, doctors who were promoting treatments for coronavirus. So, you know, they were talking about early treatments that could be effective. They were actually sent cease and desist letters and told that they would be fined and their, their licenses would be investigated if they continued um, to, to say that there were supplements, for example, that could help you in the case of getting diagnosed with coronavirus. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling in a way, although you cannot get an emergency use order for a vaccine if you can show that there are safe and effective treatments. So there was one subset of doctors who were looking at 
using herbal remedies, which is, you know, it's just medicine in a different form. It's using plants as medicine. And there was another subset of doctors who were saying, how can we use existing antivirals off-label to help people? And then there was the mainstream medical establishment that basically was acting and still acts like if you get a coronavirus diagnosis that you have now, uh, I'm sorry, COVID-19, of course, not just another coronavirus, um, but that you've been handed a, a lethal death sentence. And, you know, the, the idea that it's lethal and you're going to die and you're going to be on a ventilator in the hospital and there's absolutely nothing you can do besides getting a vaccine that absolutely everyone should get and we should ignore any of the, of the anecdotal and amassed, you know, research that's showing that these vaccines are causing, can cause some very serious and concerning outcomes. That, that does really well to fit a narrative um, take and to make people feel even more helpless and hopeless and to make it seem like it's only modern medicine that will save us. I mean, uh, <laughs> something that was, I, I, I do um, spend some time on Twitter and some time on Facebook, and there's a tweet going around that says, no offense to my husband, but the day I got married is not the best day, is not going to be the best day of my life. It's the day that I got vaccinated mm. against COVID-19. And, you know, this mm. is a young woman saying that, and wow. she really believes it. Yeah. <laughs> I hope her husband doesn't read her Twitter feed. <laughs> I'm sure he does, and he probably, he probably agrees with it. I mean, it's sort of a hallelujah. Um, and that's wonderful if you can, if, you know, if getting the vaccine is going to make you, is going to take you out of your fear mode and make you feel like you can go back into society and you can go hug your friends again, or at least shake hands. Um, maybe that is the right, you know, the right choice for you. Unfortunately, that's not what's happening. That's not what we're actually seeing. Right. What we're seeing is that people who are getting the vaccine are, are having un, really, really serious and severe bad outcomes. I, I interviewed an emergency room doctor based in Arizona who has completely done every vaccine for himself, his family, and his grandchildren, who is so concerned about the coronavirus vaccine that he's actually speaking up for the first time in his life about why he doesn't think that people should be getting it. And the reason why is he said that basically they've beat coronavirus in the area where they live. And now he's seeing his emergency rooms are becoming filled now with people having very bad outcomes. And then the second thing is, so that's one concern that I have. The second problem is that the CDC is giving us contradictory information almost on a daily basis. And people thought they could get the coronavirus vaccine and then they could go back to smiling, their beautiful smiles and having people be allowed to see their faces. But the CDC is saying, even if you've had the vaccine, you have to wear masks. So I see people who are literally wearing masks in their cars, wearing masks on the trails above our house, and wearing masks in public, you know, at all times, whether they're inside or outside, who have all have proudly displayed, I got my vaccine. <laughs> so, you know, and maybe for those people, it's already a step in the right direction because they are getting more integrated into society. But for me, that you're not allowed to breathe air through your nose and mouth without filtering it through either a a plastic, you know, disposed, mm. quote, disposable mask or a, or a filthy cloth mask. Yeah. I, I don't see how that's really getting us back to where we need to be. Well, I will say that when I go into a local grocery store, I wear a mask. And the reason that I wear the mask is because in that store, that's the norm. And I don't want to have people being freaked out because I'm not wearing a mask. When I'm outside the store, the moment I walk out of the store, the mask is off my face. I would never drive around with it on my face on the car, in the car. Why would I do that? Um, but, I, but I do it because of, I, don't want to, I don't want to create the tension that's going to make people's immune systems being suppressed because I'm not being, wearing a mask and they're going to freak out. I'm not worrying because I'm worried about me because and when, I when have are you Richard yeah. go ahead when are when will you when are you going to take that mask off i mean when is it are you going to take it off when public health tells you it's safe to take it off? are you going to take it off when everybody else takes theirs off, or when do you decide to let the mask I'm, go 
I'll let the mask go as I watch others begin to let it go. So I'm not the no, I'm not the soloist. Most of the, this is a small grocery store, so most of the people know their know me and have had conversations with me, so they know I already have a what might be called surly attitude about it. In the sense of I've they know what I do and they they've had conversations with me about it. And at some point, I will just stop wearing it. When I see a bit of a tilt towards social norm, I live in a very touristy area, and when the tourists come to town, it's a social norm. The tourists come to town and don't wear masks because they're like, we're free, we can go out, and it's a very touristy area. And so when I'm out and about, I'm not wearing a mask at all. But in this particular store, it's it's setting-related. There's some places where I would wear a mask, but again, it's because it's a social norm that everybody wants you to be wearing a mask. And at some point, it'll begin to tilt the other direction. And then I just won't wear the mask anymore. Because my other, I will add to that, that I see this group of people that think it's so cool that they have a T-shirt around their neck that they pull up and down on their face all day long. And I'm thinking, Mike, are you crazy? You know, you're just gathering all sorts of creepy stuff in there. What, did you watch that this week? You know, there's that, there's that trend. Right, we actually are supposed to be washing the cloth. You you should wash and sterilize the cloth mask every time after every use, but most people aren't doing that. And as you mentioned, the you know you're you're getting moisture on the inside of the mask, and it's harboring all sorts of um, bacteria. We have a a a researcher. um, He's the head of the Department of Biology at a university in Redding, California, who's actually been doing some of the cutting edge research about the masks and he just told me on the phone that he has some incredibly disgusting photographs to share <laughs> that is part of the research that he's publishing now um there's a pretty strong argument uh against wearing masks i mean there are several and then there are some arguments there are you know and there are some arguments in favor of wearing masks we have a fascinating body of science right now and but boy do people get mad one way or the other you know, you say on both sides, you say, I want to be able to see your face. And I think it's my right to breathe the air in in our, you know, in my town. And people <laughs> accuse you of being QAnon because you don't want to put something on your nose and your mouth. And then on the other side, um, you know, there's there are people who are so frustrated and furious with everybody keeping their masks on that they're saying, could you please wake up already and start thinking for yourself? So it's, it's the vitriol I find to be very disturbing. I believe after reading about 35 peer reviewed studies and looking at all of the data from the CDC, which is one place that I would always tell people back to your earlier question, like, where do you start researching? I find starting with the government, starting with the CDC and the FDA, and looking at the research that they are quoting is almost always the best place to begin. But after reading, you know, over 35 peer-reviewed articles about masking, I don't think that these masks are helping. I think that they are doing more harm than good in several different ways. And that's not an argument. It's not a conversation we have to have right now. But it's very hard. I do understand and I appreciate that you don't want to make other people uncomfortable. But what about the people who are now completely shut out of society because of the masks? And I'm talking about my friend who lives in Colorado, who is severely deaf and has to lip read, who can no longer speak to mm. anyone and who has become suicidal because of it. It's just devastating. And it's he's, uh-huh. it's been devastating to him for over 12 months now. I'm talking about the women that I know who were victims of of rape and sexual abuse where they were choked or where they were held up at gunpoint by people wearing masks. I'm talking about anyone who has a sensory processing disorder. And, you know, unfortunately, we're talking about several million children in the United States who have sensory processing disorders who can't bear to have the feeling of a mask on their nose and mouths and have been completely shut out of society and literally throw their families have been thrown off airplanes um you know i feel total compassion for the people who are living in fear and who are afraid to see your nose and mouth richard and i also feel as much compassion for the people who have very legitimate medical reasons for not being able to wear a mask and i wish we could show equal compassion for both groups of people and not 
accuse either group of being wrong or selfish or stupid. I still think you're a Renaissance hippie. <laughs> in the best of ways. I mean, I'm not, I'm really being very facetious. I just want to be very clear that's completely facetious that it's, you know, humanity. Let's try being, as I, as I often say, let's be kind. It's free. What do you think? Couldn't we be kind? Is that okay? Could we just be mannerly? I mean, I can definitely get on my soapbox at the drop of a hat as all of my friends who told me to go off and do, go do a radio show. We don't want to hear about it anymore. Whatever it was I was writing about <laughs> at the time. But it's really true. Have compassion for people. That's, that's partially why currently at this one particular grocery store, I will wear a mask. And as the trend goes away, I will stop wearing a mask. I'll be the first one to stop wearing a mask. Not the first, because I don't want to be that person in this crowd but as it begins to break down, as it will, because I know some of the other players at this grocery store, then I'll jump on board. But for now, I don't mm. want to get into a contentious, why aren't you, how come you aren't, because particularly these people know that I will tell them why I'm not. And I don't want to <laughs> be doing that. I just want to go get my groceries. <laughs> That's well, how, really... how about this, Richard? <laughs> how about, sure. this, Richard? How about my, my friend um, who was with her 13-year-old and – um, the 13-year-old was wearing a face shield and the mom was wearing a mask and a, a woman came up to them in, infuriated and started yelling in their faces because it, she said, you put your grocery cart too close to mine. How dare you do that? She's like, you know, shaking with fear and anger at a 13-year-old girl for shopping, for going shopping. I mean, <laughs> Yeah. That yeah. is, and you know, and or the. I'll give you another example. I I play soccer with. Well, I played soccer with some older adults. I'd been invited to come and play, and we're talking about people in their sixties and seventies. And I was wearing a face shield as well. And I, this woman said to me, "I sure would feel better if you had your nose and mouth covered." And I said, "I do," because I was wearing one of the ones that you wear on your chin. I mean, we were outside, we were socially distanced, and I play hard, and I need to be able to breathe. And this yeah. is my compromise. You know, it's still getting all fogged up and whatever, but you, it's definitely covering my nose and mouth. And she said to me, well, I can see your face. And I thought, wow, she's so afraid of my, I, you know, I don't know if it matters to you, but I'm absolutely healthy. I've had no chance of any exposures. And I, you know, I, I, my last intention was to make you feel uncomfortable. And she said, but I can see your face. And <laughs> So that was the last time that I played soccer with those very nice, wonderful people. And I'm very sorry, but I absolutely am not going to bind my nose and mouth for their comfort. But I did choose not, you know, not to participate anymore. And that's the kind of thing that I think strips us of our humanity in so many ways. And I, I feel like a, a really ugly side of people has started coming out. And it's partly this prolonged exposure to fear, which is seeing our amygdala and making it very, very hard to, to actually use the prefrontal cortex of the brain. Um, we're living in this constant state of terror, and it, it clouds our ability to be logical and thoughtful and compassionate. Well, and I think also it's, it exacerbates the part that we don't, most people don't consider is how many clue, how many subtle clues we get from watching people's faces so that when you remove three quarters of the face at the same grocery store, I'll often laugh with some of the clerks who I said, Oh, you have really, you're really good with your eyes expressing things. I'm sort of like <laughs> just a stick. I, you know, I'm kind of that way, but I'm more animated when I speak and how there's that we're missing all those facial clues that we are not consciously aware that we're missing. And I think that's also creating tension because you can't read people. We don't, we don't, yeah. we're not consciously aware of how much we read off of subtle facial clues. Some people smile, some people grim, some people, there's laughter. We're missing all of that. So we've reduced the amount of communication of data that we're getting from in conversation with people. So it's easy to be the cranky woman flipping out at a 13 year old. Yeah, easier. Exactly. I'm not giving yeah, her permission, yeah. but I'm just saying that. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I think that's really too, it's, it's really un, unfortunate, I think. Um, and it, and it, and for adults, you know, we can kind of weather this. For children, I wonder what kind of 
you know, permanent damage or long-lasting delays we're causing because, of course, um, you know, human babies need to look at human faces. And they're making women um, wear masks during labor now. We see babies, their first look at their moms when they're just meeting for the first time and the moms have masks over their noses and mouths. And, I mean, the, the kind of damage we might be doing to children that way, we don't know. But, I mean, we do. There is some data now showing that it's creating language delays and empathy, you know, and emotional problems. But we don't know what the long-term consequences may or may not be. Common sense, Richard, would tell us that human beings need to see each other's faces. Yes. (laughs) There's a whole (laughs) – well, I I know that, that, you know, I'm concurring because I have so many other thoughts, like don't even get me started about how children are learning on their tablets about through other people on Zoom. Really? Really? That's – what is that? I, I look forward to your research on that, how that's affecting kids as they grow. Not, you know, children already spend too much time on electronic devices. All people spend too much time on electronic devices looking at their phones instead of at each other. I see people out having meals at nice places, and they're both sitting and looking at their devices. What? Are you kidding me? String of bad words. Okay, with that, (laughs) I'm stunned to find that we're here, but I want to ask quickly about Tell us a little bit about and refer people to where to find out more about this Healthy, Healthy Immunity 2021 conference that you have coming up next week, I think. Yeah, it is. It's next Saturday. Um, you can get information at www.healthycommunity. I'm sorry, <laughs> Healthy Community. I like that, um, but that's yeah. not the website. Yeah. Um, healthyimmunity.org. Um, so it's a it's the second time we've done it, and it's um it's the the tagline of this conference is the cutting edge, and we have medical doctors and scientists coming from around the United States to share their research about healthy immunity. So everything from we'll be talking about autoimmune disorders, and we have one researcher coming who herself has two autoimmune disorders, including alopecia, which she managed Mm. to cure with lifestyle changes. It was something that started in her teens. Um, We have, I mentioned Brian Hooker, who is a professor um, who will be, who's doing original research about masks um, and who's a name that may be familiar to some of your listeners who are interested in questions about over-vaccination. Bob Sears is coming from Southern California to talk about the state of, you know, children's health and vaccine questions. Um, And, yeah, we're coming together in a private venue so we can discuss and learn and empower and educate. And that's happening in Southern Oregon. I, I don't know if any of your listeners are going to be interested in coming. I don't. I suspect that we are sold out. Um, the, the You can get a ticket, and it will not be live-streamed, but anyone who has a ticket will get a recording of the event. It's not really a public event. It's more of a private event. <laughs> and, in fact, one of our speakers does not want to be recorded, and so that recording won't be included. But um, anybody who gets a ticket, that ticket, who can't come in person, that ticket will go to one of our student or scholarship recipients. Great. Thank you so much. And and how do people find out more about you? Your site is amazing uh, with information. Wow. It's great. It's a thank researcher's you. I dream. That. <laughs> <laughs> um my website is www.jennifermargulis.net. So my name jennifermargulis.net. Um and you know I've I've written, edited, co-written, co-edited eight books so far, and so I invite your listeners to read one of my books, to come to my website, and also to sign up for my newsletter, which is just an email I send not quite once a week, and that is usually full of information that you're not going to find elsewhere because of the censor culture that we're living in right now. So I started this newsletter list. Um, I think we have about 18,000 subscribers on it right now in order to combat some of the social media censorship and, you know, search engine censorship. So I try to just 
send helpful, useful information about once a week, a little bit less often than that. Great. Thank you. I will say I will put a plug in for uh, I'd like to have you back so we can talk about the vaccine plan, which we didn't have time to get to, and censorship, and bees and glyphosate. Oh, yeah. We missed a lot of topics there. (laughs) It was a great show, though. It was really great. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. All right, everybody. Have a great rest of the weekend. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.